Well, good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Roger Pilon. I'm director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and your host this afternoon. I'm pleased to note that the uh, Federalist Society's practice groups uh, are co-sponsoring our debate today. So on behalf of both Cato and the Federalist Society, uh, let me extend a welcome also to those uh, watching us uh, through Cato's live streaming and uh, through the good offices of C-SPAN TV as well. Uh, three days uh, from today, on Monday, January 13th, the Supreme Court will hear argument in a case called National Labor Relations Board v. Noel Canning. One of the most important constitutional cases, the court is expected to decide this term. At issue is the president's recess appointments power, his power to make recess appointments to federal offices that otherwise require Senate confirmation. The court has never clearly decided the nature and scope of that power. For today's date, it's worth uh, debate. It's worth uh, it to begin by quoting the constitutional text at issue. So if you'll pull out your handy Cato pocket constitution, and if you turn to Article 2, Section 2, you'll see that it says, and I quote, the president shall have power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of the next session. The purpose of that power, plainly, was to enable the president to fill offices, especially important ones, that should happen to become vacant when the Senate is not in session and so cannot give its advice and consent, as would otherwise be required for confirmation. Thus, the separation of powers and the concurrent power of the Senate are at issue in this case. Unfortunately, as with so much else in the Constitution, that's not how the power has been used over the years. And nowhere is that more clear than when President Obama, on January 4th, 2010, filled three vacancies on the National Labor Relations Board without Senate confirmation when the Senate was arguably in session. Not surprisingly, litigation followed, and on January 25th of last year, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, in the case now before the Supreme Court, held that Mr. Obama's appointments were unconstitutional, both because they filled vacancies when the Senate was not in true recess and because the vacancies had not actually happened during the purported recess. It was a ringing opinion written by then Chief Judge David Sentel, and it was followed by two other appellate court decisions. Both the Third and the Fourth Circuits found the Obama appointments unconstitutional. And so we take up the question here today as a foretaste of what to expect at the Supreme Court on Monday. The proposition to be debated here is straightforward, resolved. President Obama's recess, recent purported recess appointments were unconstitutional. Professor Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz will argue in the affirmative, and so will go first. Professor Victor Williams will argue in the negative. Each will make opening arguments of no more than 18 minutes, followed by five-minute responses each, after which we'll open it up to questions from you in the audience, followed by lunch upstairs in our George M. Yeager Conference Center. 
Let me now introduce our speakers. Nicholas Quinn's, Quinn uh, Rosencrantz is a professor of law at Georgetown, where he teaches constitutional law and federal courts. He's also a senior fellow in constitutional studies here at the Cato Institute, I'm pleased to say. He holds a BA and a JD from Yale University. His articles have appeared in the Harvard and the Stanford Law Reviews. Professor Rosencrantz has served and advised the federal government in a variety of capacities. He clerked for the, Judge Frank Easterbrook on the Seventh Circuit and for Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. He served as an attorney advisor at the Office of Legal Counsel at the U.S. Department of Justice as well. He often testifies before Congress as a constitutional expert. He's also filed briefs and presented oral argument before the U.S. Supreme Court. His most recent Supreme Court brief was on behalf of the Cato Institute. Victor Williams teaches at the Catholic University School of Law, where he is clinical assistant professor in the lawyering skills program. And he teaches law and economics and lawyering skills. He holds a master's degree in education and public policy from Harvard University and three law degrees, a JD from the University of California's Hastings College of Law, where he was the articles editor of the Hastings Constitutional Law Quarterly, an LLM from Columbia University's School of Law, where he was a student editor of the American Review of International Arbitration, and an LLM specializing in law and economics from the George Mason University School of Law. Professor Williams' academic articles have appeared in the law journals of Michigan, William & Mary, Columbia, George Mason, and elsewhere. Most recently, the Huffington Post has featured a series of his commentaries on the federal appointments process. He served as a federal judicial clerk uh, with U.S. District Court Judge B, uh, w. Uh, B. Hand. He also worked as a federal judicial extern for U.S. Court of Appeals Judge G.B. Choflat and the 11th Circuit and the U.S. Court of Appeals Judge Joseph Sneed of the 9th Circuit. Additionally, he interned with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, working on enforcement issues at the SEC regional offices of, in Los Angeles. Again, we will have each speaker speak for about 18 minutes, and then we'll have them respond for five minutes each. And we'll begin with Professor Rosencrantz. Please give a warm welcome to our speakers today. Great. Thanks so much, Roger. I'm happy to uh, be here. I'm going to maybe spend just a minute or two uh, trying to put this issue in context before getting to uh, the arguments. Um, so uh, Roger gave you the text of the, uh, of the recess appointments clause. I think I should give you the text of the appointments clause for uh, comparison. So uh, the president shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States uh, that, um, whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for and which shall be established by law. So that's the general rule. And that's the general rule. As a general matter, these senior appointments are uh, to be made by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. 
Then there's this exception to the rule. And what we're talking about here today is the exceptions. The exception is this vacancies clause. The president shall have power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their next session. Now, it's not hard to, it's not hard to imagine the paradigm case for this, right? Why did we need an exception to the rule, the paradigm case? Clearly, it's something along the lines of the Senate is not around and some key crucial general is killed right, on the battlefield, and the president needs to appoint somebody to fill his shoes, and the Senate's not around. There has to be some mechanism under circumstances like those, and I think that's what they were imagining, right? And we can think that that was the paradigm case. Not to say that's the only case, but that surely was the paradigm case that motivated this uh, clause. Okay, so um, uh, so what we have to do, th this is a case that um, constitutional law professors love, and the reason is uh, there's almost no doctrine about this. So the court has said almost nothing about this, and that leaves us going back to first principles. So when we don't have doctrine to parse, we don't have Supreme Court opinions to parse, we have to go back to constitutional text and history and structure and try to figure out what this document means, right? What this document means, circa 1789. So what we do is we dig into this text and try to figure out what it means, all right? So uh, as Roger explained, President Obama made some appointments in early January purporting to use this recess appointments clause. And the question at issue is whether those were valid recess appointments, whether the clause was properly uh, invoked there. And so to figure that out, we have to parse the language of this clause. And it actually raises uh, three distinct um, issues. So I'm going to tell you the three issues. I should say this is not really original analysis. I'm really giving you the uh, respondents' arguments about this, which is uh, Noel Francisco uh, representing respondents' arguments. Excellent brief in this case. Uh, so there are three issues. The point I want to make before I even begin, though, is I, Noel, um, Noel Francisco and uh, Noel Francisco before the court, and I here before you, only have to be right about one of them. Right? Only have to be right about one of them in order to win. I have to be wrong about all three in order to lose. So I want to urge you to bear that in mind as I go through these three uh, points. So OK, uh, the first thing to figure out here um, is, so the president shall have power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate. What is a recess? What, does, what, is, the, what is the recess? What do those words mean? Two possibilities immediately present themselves. So one possibility is it means the formal rec the recess between the formal sessions of Congress, the numbered sessions of Congress, of which there are typically two or maybe three in a given Congress, like they're a year long, and then there's the recess in, and then there's the recess between the numbered sessions. This theory is the intercession theory, right? A vacancy is only there's only an intercession recess. There's no such thing as an intra-session recess on this theory. Um, the intra-session would have another name, and the name would be something like an adjournment, right? An adjournment rather than a recess, and the Constitution uses the word adjournment. So that's one possible theory. 
is that um, uh, the recess appointments clause is only triggered during that recess between those numbered formal sessions of uh, Congress. That is Noel, Frances Noel, Fran Noel Francisco's view, and that's the view that I'm wanting to take uh, today. Now, there is another possibility, right? The government's view is um, that there can be intra-session uh, recesses, right? A recess is, on the government's view, a break, a break that the um, Congress, that the Senate takes, um, a break that the Senate takes. Now, uh, um, the government, though, presenting that position immediately has two analytical problems. So one problem with that position is, can it really mean any break however short? And can it really actually mean a 10-minute break or a five-minute break you know, or a lunch break or something? Can it really possibly mean any break however short? Wouldn't that be crazy? If that were true, wouldn't the exception swallow the rule, right? The president would just wait for lunch and then appoint the person and not go through the Senate consent. Seems like that must be crazy. And so the government is left to try to deal with that problem by drawing a, uh, arbitrary, an arbitrary-seeming line, which is, well, um, there's a kind of a de minimis exception. So um, it's a break of a substantial amount of time, and the government sort of half-heartedly says, you know, we think it's about three days. We think it's three days, and if it's longer than three days, then it counts as a recess, and if it's shorter, then it doesn't. Now, you, they, could they could have derived that thought from the adjournments clause of the Constitution. Neither House during the session of Congress shall, without the consent of the other, adjourn for more than three days, nor to any other place than that in which the two houses shall be sitting. But oddly, the government doesn't seem to want to derive this three days from that clause. And in fact, they're pretty half-hearted about their three days line. You know, it seems like they're wanting to leave open the door that maybe tomorrow they'd like to argue that it's only two days. So they don't, they don't really wholeheartedly endorse that, but they do see the problem of the lunch break. So uh, that leaves them drawing this somewhat arbitrary line. Now there's a second big analytical problem with the government's idea, and it's this. If you listen to the language of the Recess Appointments Clause, it seems to be setting up a dichotomy between the recess and the session, right? The recess and the session. So I'm gonna give it to you again. The president shall have power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their next session. And it sounds like uh, recesses and sessions alternate, right? When you're not in session, you're in recess. And when you're not in recess, you're in session. This sort of sounds like these um, ideas alternate. But look at the government's problem if they're right about these, about these many little recesses. They would be forced, you would think, to adopt a view of many little sessions. Right? spread out among many little recesses. So if you took a four-day recess and then a 10-day session and then a four-day recess, the 10 days would be the session. Right? So you could have the So on that theory, you'd have an appointment during that four-day gap, but it could only last for that next 10-day session. And then at the end of that next session, it would uh, end. The government doesn't like that. The government doesn't like that. And so they don't take that view. 
They don't take that view. What they want to say is recess means it's colloquial meaning, like a little break, like you'd have in school that could be very short or whatever, anything that's just um, three days or more. But session is formal and long and lasts the full, and that's the full numbered year. So they, so they don't quite, so they don't want to sign on to this idea of recess versus session, the, um, the dichotomy between the two. They actually think that, so they're forced actually to believe that you can have both at the same time, right? That right now, that at any given moment, you might be in one of these short recesses, but you're also still in session, right? You're in the session. Um, the government has to think. So they have this formal view of session, this kind of informal short view of um, recess. That's kind of seems analytically awkward to say the least and kind of textually uh, awkward. Also creates a kind of an odd anomaly if you think about it. So now imagine a formal session just begins. So a formal session starts on January 3rd or 4th or whatever it is. And um, and uh, then there's a short little recess. And on the government's view, you can appoint somebody, the president can appoint somebody during that short little recess. And it lasts, that commission lasts, expires at the end of their next session. That is not the session that we're in now on the government's view, but the next session. So the thing can last for just short of two years, which is uh, you know, the length of a congressional term. I mean, that's a long time and plenty of time during which the Senate is around, right? The Senate could be confirming folks, but this recess appointment during that four-day gap is going to count for almost two years on the government's view. But the government's required, so the government's required to believe um, recesses, short and informal sessions, though, long and formal. And if you do a recess appointment at the beginning of an intra-session uh, intra recess, it lasts for two full sessions almost. So that's rather extraordinary, but the government's forced to believe all that. Okay, so that's really the first point, intercession and intra-session. Okay, here's the second point. Listen to this language again. Uh, the president shall have power to fill up all vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate. Now we're talking about the word happen um, on uh, a kind of a plain meaning uh, reading of this. You would think happen means um, comes into existence, right? Begins, right? Begins. So in my paradigm case, the general who's killed during the recess, right? The general's killed during the recess, happens during the recess. Um, these appointments, President Obama's appointments, didn't happen during the recess in that sense on anybody's view. So what happened here was the vacancies existed, the vacancies happened, came into existence while the Senate was in session. Then the Senate went into what the president says is a recess, that's debatable. And then the president says, okay, now the vacancy exists during that recess, right? So these are two different possible readings of the word happen. One is happen meaning come into existence um, or happen meaning occur, let's say. The government wants to say no, happen doesn't mean occur. What it means is um, continues to exist or happens to exist, right? The, um, when the president looks around the world and sees a vacancy, then it is happening at that uh, moment is the government's 
uh, theory. Okay, so now as to this, I think the again, the, I think the plain language is kind of crystal clear, actually, and the government's reading is quite implausible. Now, on this point, though, the government does have one thing in its favor, which is a huge amount of history. So uh, in the early days, like the first generation, from about 1789 to about 1823, everyone assumed what I'm offering as the common sense, plain meaning of the word happen. But then uh, an attorney general in 1823, I think, wrote an opinion saying, no, happen means actually uh, happens to exist. And the executive branch has more or less, has taken that position, I wouldn't say quite consistently, but pretty consistently um, from then on. And so they at least have that, they have that argument, that from 1823 on, more or less, the executive branch has taken this position. So that actually raises this kind of interesting methodological question, how much does that matter? Um, even if you assume, like, if you take that as true, how much do you care? Um, if you thought that the government was, if you thought that the plain meaning answer was right, circa 1789 and for the first generation, and if you think the attorney general was wrong in 1823, does it matter to you that that wrong interpretation has been the executive branch view for 180 odd years? It's kind of an interesting methodological question. So if you're a textualist originalist, you're probably inclined toward the original meaning circa 1789, even though there's been this long history. But to be sure, this long history is going, matters to a lot of folks and will matter, no doubt, to a number of justices. So uh, as to that, the government has a strong argument, but not really a good argument from text, I would say. They have a good argument from uh, tradition. So that's um, happened. And then just to make the third point here, and this is the point on which I cannot imagine the government um, winning. But so, uh, and the third point, what the Senate has gotten in the habit of doing because of this phenomenon is holding what are called, what they call pro forma sessions. And what they do is every three days, a senator gavels the place to order and a few seconds later gavels it closed. And they uh, do that every three days exactly so that they are quote in session rather than in recess. And that has been annoying to presidents for 20 or 30 years, but presidents have nevertheless said, I guess I am out of luck. Those folks are gaveling the place to order, and so I guess I'm out of luck. It's been annoying to them, but, they have, but it's been the state of the world. Uh, President Obama, though, and this is unprecedented, President Obama said, you know what, that's not a real session. That's not a real session. You say you are in session, but I say you're not. I say you're not. I say that's not a real session. I say actually you're in recess, and thus I feel that I have the power to make these recess appointments. And that was what was going on during these particular um, recess appointments. Um, this, is the this, is the, this is the first time president's ever done that, right? First time there's ever been a recess appointment during a time when the Senate itself believed that it was in session, right? President claiming the power to decide whether the Senate is in session or not, or claiming the power to override the Senate's own judgment about whether it is in session, you know, despite 
clear textual commands that the Senate is the master of its own rules and so forth in the Constitution. So um, I would say it's hard to imagine that um, the government is going to win on that point. I'd be very surprised. But so for the um, for Noel Canning to win, they have to win on only one of these points. I want to re-emphasize that. Or to put it another way, any one of these points can persuade any one of the justices, right? So you can you can get a vote from a justice with any of these three points. And I'm going to go ahead and predict to you that one of these points is going to persuade all nine of them. I'm going to go ahead and offer you a reckless prediction that this is going to be 9-0. I don't think this is a close case, actually. Thank you. Okay, we'll hear now from Victor Williams. Well, oh my goodness, it is a privilege to be here uh, at, uh, at, at Cato. Uh, as a, a somewhat late convert uh, to the field of law and economics, uh, a privilege to be at a place with uh, Friedrich Hayek's name on the wall. <laughs> my, my goodness. Um, it's a privilege to be at a, at a program co-sponsored by the Federalist Society, um, who, uh, a society that's done so much to promote the free exchange of ideas uh, in the legal profession, but more so in, in, in law schools all across this country. Um, so uh, a genuine privilege. Uh, there and kudos to the Federalist Society for 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 doing that and actually for having uh, promoted enough of a uh, of a free market of ideas that the American Constitution Society has popped up now from the progressive side uh, to to also um, uh, do exactly the same thing. So uh, kudos to both of those. Um, anytime and anywhere, it is an honor to discuss our great uh, Constitution. I do so with reverence but also with joy and pride as an American. Uh, my students tell me I do so with too much enthusiasm. <laughs> and so I'll try that, to dial that back a bit. I was privileged to follow an amicus brief, uh, one of three, in support of, of President Obama's uh, recess appointments, in support of all future presidents' recess appointments, President Rand Paul, President Hillary Clinton, they will need both permanent and temporary constitutional authority to fill their government. And it won't be that long, will it? If we're going to attempt first principles, if we're going to attempt originalism, I think I always have to. I have to go back to our first constitution. I have to go back to 1781, the ratification of the Articles of Confederation, to remind, remind myself, to remind all, under the Articles, there was no executive, there was no president, uh, no, no judiciary, no national judiciary, no, no separate branch to execute the law, to administer the government. Congress had all the power and all the responsibility, and they failed badly. Today, we often hear about dysfunction, our dysfunctional government. Well, let me tell you, in the 1780s, there was genuine dysfunction, there was dangerous dysfunction. Uh, the Confederation Congress had failed miserably in its attempts uh, to both legislate and to administer the new republic. Neither specially constituted uh, committees, government by congressional committee, God forbid, um, nor congressionally appointed administrators had been able uh, to execute the law, to administer our new government. One of many reasons that in the summer of 1787, Delegates were sent to Philadelphia, and we uh, came to draft our Constitution, our second Constitution. 
priming that, that mission, uh, the framers formally separated, formally separated executive authority from uh, the Congress. The Congress was stripped of its executive function, executive duty, its executive responsibilities. They had failed. Executive powers were transferred to, through, vis-a-vis, -vis, what came to be Article II, a president, a president, a, a single individual, a chief executive, a chief administrator, a commander-in-chief. Congress was left with fulsome powers, fulsome legislative powers, enumerated as they were. Of course, one president, one individual, can't do the job of executing the law, of administering the government, even back in 1789. So the summer debate continued. The president needed help, obviously. Who would hire the help? Who would hire the help? Who would hire the, uh, uh, the principal, uh, high-level officers under the president to execute the law? Who would hire uh, the folks to fill the benches that would be created under this new constitution? Going into the convention, many folks went in with the assumption that Congress would continue to do that job, that Congress would continue to appoint the, uh, the officials and the new judges. That's an interesting thing about our founding era. Debate and discussion mattered. And so in Philadelphia, in the summer of 1787, this was debated. Who would best fill these positions? Who, who, was, the, who was the best uh, person to choose our officers and our judges? Minds were changed. Minds were changed. And at the end, this convention's final summer judgment was to grant the president, in my view, a strong, predominant appointment authority. The president would choose. The House had no role whatsoever to play. The Senate was restricted to a confirmation vote. The Senate would give advice and consent. They would give a simple majority consensual vote. That was their advice. And the president retained appointment authority. The president could and usually does accept their confirmation advice, but he doesn't have to. He still has appointment power. He can choose to accept and then actually sign the commission. There is the appointment. It's the president signing the commission. It's the president signing the commission. He has fulsome uh, appointment authority. He has first mover advantage, as the law and econ folks would say, and he has final authority to sign the commission or not. On that same summer day that this accord was struck, House, no role whatsoever, Senate, a restricted advisory consent vote, and the president, uh, the final authority for permanent appointments, the question rose, well, what happens if the Senate's not available, what happens to these offices? Uh, these offices are supposed to be important offices. Their judgeships are supposed to be important judgeships. Do they lay fallow until the Senate returns? And um, North Carolina's uh, Richard Spate stepped up and said, uh, uh, no, uh, no. Uh, the simple solution is to grant the president a unilateral appointment authority when the Senate was unavailable. The Senate is gone. The president has no need to make a formal nomination. The president has no need to wait for the, for the Senate's uh, advisory consent vote. 
under Clause 3, the president signs the commission. The president puts the individual to work. It's, a, it, it, it's not an exception to the appointment authority. It's the capstone of presidential predominance in appointments. The convention delegates immediately and unanimously accepted this grant of exclusive temporary appointment authority for the president. Uh, uh, the uh, Spates motion uh, prompted no additional debate. It was integral to the delegate's structural and functional design for executive appointment authority. The president's appointment authority would remain vested and operable at all times for all purposes, regardless of the Senate's attendance to its duties. Again, the president simply signs the commission, puts the official to work. All presidents, beginning with George Washington, have used this authority keep the government and the judiciary working. Unlike the Articles of Confederation, this Constitution was actually going to work, work for the people. The call of the question here. And, and, and thanks so much for the, uh, uh, I, wish, I wish my con law professors uh, had been so clear and direct. That, that was wonderful. I, I really do appreciate that. The call of the question here, were President Obama's commission's constitutional. Of course they were. Of course they were. And we'll get more to this, hopefully, uh, in, in, in the discussion. The sham pro forma sessions are nothing more than that. Um, I, I argued strongly against them when Harry Reid started in um, 2007 and 2008. I encouraged George Bush uh, uh, to challenge Harry Reid's uh, 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 Las Vegas bluff. He didn't. Obama did. The uh, sham performance sessions do not change the fact that the Senate was unavailable. It was on a planned 20-day, excuse me, 20-day, no business break. It was gone. There was no quorum to be had. The Constitution, in my view, exclusively grants the executive both the responsibility to determine Senate unavailability and the discretion to sign temporary commissions. Alexander Hamilton explained in Federalist 67, Clause 3 is, quote, intended to authorize the president singly, S-I-N-G-L-Y, alone, we might say, to make temporary appointments, close quotes. Again, Clause 3, quote, intended to authorize the president singly to make temporary appointments. Only the executive has the institutional competence to know when such an appointment action is required. <clears throat> for his, for his Article 2, Section 3 mandate, he's required. He takes an oath. He takes an oath to God to take care that the laws be faithfully executed and commission all officers of the United States. Only the executive has that institutional competence to know when temporary commissions are needed. Now, as to the specifics of the DC Circuit's erroneous, and I've come to see, uh, regretfully, reluctantly, biased ruling. In the interest of time, I have to reference you to the solicitors, uh, the Solicitor General's uh, very strong brief. Uh, available uh, through the excellent website site at uh, scotusblog.com. They have briefs for every uh, case argued before the court. Uh, double click away for you. Um, the brief is exhausting uh, in, in detailing 
why the temporary appointment authority can be exercised during intra-session breaks um, and for pre-existing positions. The Solicitor General uh, rises to the challenge, meets and, uh, and defeats the DC Circuit's ruling on originalist grounds. He breaks out the ye old dictionaries and the contemporary practices of the founding era um, uh, to support his analysis. Uh, uh, diagrams the sentences uh, as, we, as if we were in ninth grade English. The brief fully explains the purpose and historical function of the temporary appointments. And yes, most effectively, the brief's appendix lists the names of hundreds of officials and judges uh, whose intra-session and or pre-existing vacancy recess commissions uh, have, have been made. Counting military appointments, the numbers go into the thousands. While I strongly support the Solicitor General's merits position, I do have to uh, uh, come forward and say, I strongly believe he made a mistake. His mistake was in the fact that he should have made an alternative preemptive argument. And he knows that, right? You make uh, alternative arguments, commerce clause, taxation, uh, sometimes it works out uh, uh, well, for the, for the victory at least. Um, in amicus briefs uh, to the DC Circuit and to the Supreme Court, uh, I argue that Noel Canning presents a non-reviewable political question to the court. Some questions, some questions are committed by the Constitution, by the text of the Constitution, to the exclusive discretion of our elected political branches. Could it be that the court doesn't have the last word? Could it be that the John Roberts Court has a wonderful opportunity to prove its conservative credentials by exercising judicial restraint to stay out of the partisan fight over appointments? My brief details application of modern political question cases, uh, such as Baker v. Carr, Goldwater v. Carter, uh, Walter Nixon versus the United States. Let's just take one of them in the interest of time. In the 1993 case of Walter Nixon, a debenched federal judge down in, uh, gosh, Mississippi, I believe, uh, the court refused, the Supreme Court refused to review the Senate's shortcut impeachment trial process. <laughs> the, the Senate, busy raising money, going on junkets, they didn't have time to, to transform it themselves into the nation's high court of impeachment as the framers intended. Rather, they had a little Evans committee. It works for legislation, right? So we have a little committee. 12 senators actually hear the evidence, and uh, 88 senators don't. They're off doing other things. Then, all 100 senators come together, and all 100 senators thumbs up or thumbs down. It was thumbs down. Walter Nixon was stripped of his uh, tenure and salary as a federal a judge. So what does a good a lawyer do? He sued. He sued, of course. And uh, he sought um, to uh, uh, have the courts, have the judiciary review this uh, shortcut, procedurally deficient impeachment trial uh, process. Well, Chief Justice Rehnquist knew that impeachment removal was a, quote, important constitutional check on the judiciary. Exercising prudence and restraint, our nation's highest court would not even define the word try in the Senate's impeachment trial clause of Article I. 
Here, they should not attempt to even define the recess or uh, when it may happen uh, for the political branches. Justice judges should not be the final arbiters of the Senate removal process. The court should not have the final say, the final word on the temporary appointment method used to regulate bench composition and used to transform our court's racial and gender demographics. Let's be clear how recess appointments have been used in the 300 uh, judges that have come to the bench temporarily. The first female judges by recess appointment. The first Jewish federal judges by recess appointment. Four of the first five U.S. Court of Appeals African-American judges by recess appointment. Judicial oversight of recess appointments is a blatant conflict of interest. The court should stay out of this political, partisan fight. Best just leave it to the elected political uh, branches uh, to fight out, and the ideological interest groups to fight out. There were 25 amicus briefs filed opposing Barack Obama's recess appointments. Were they really, or were they just opposing Barack Obama? Best to leave it to the elected political branches to fight out. Justice Sotomayor used the term uh, recently in an oral argument. Just, just, leave it to, uh, just leave it to the elected political branches to, quote, duke it out. Thank you. All right, we're going to have now five-minute responses from each of our speakers, then we'll open it up for you folks. Great, so that was a very interesting presentation. I guess I'm gonna to speak to the end of it first. So uh, the good professor spoke, argued that the case is non-justiciable, that the court should stay out of it. He argued that in a uh, brief before the court and you heard him argue it for uh, five of his 18 minutes just now. Uh, that offers up, I guess, a terrific uh, teachable moment for the law students in the room. That is not the question of our debate. It's not the question of our debate, and I'm going to help you to understand that by reading you the resolution. Quote, resolved. President Obama's recess, recent purported recess appointments were unconstitutional. The question of constitutionality and the question of justiciability are quite different, distinct questions. I worked for years at the Office of Legal Counsel, the Department of Justice, and we answered constitutional questions all the time, which were non-justiciable, which will never show up in court. So what we're arguing about here is whether the president violated the Constitution, quite regardless of whether the court ought to be answering this question. That is, we're wanting your view our view on whether the Constitution was violated. We're not doing the court's view. We're doing our view. Was this unconstitutional or not? So you can agree with the entire last five minutes that you heard, and it has nothing to do with your view about how this debate should come out. We're arguing about constitutionality here. So that's important. And you know, people, I, I think um, in law schools, in your con law classes, you sometimes come to think, or you sometimes 
you might come to think that um, these questions are the same, right? If the court is going to, if the court won't declare it unconstitutional, then somehow it is constitutional. That's not so. There are questions the court will stay out of. They're nevertheless legit constitutional questions for us, for we the people to uh, consider. And you know, this may be such a question. It has nothing to do with this uh, debate. So okay. Second, um, uh, I heard uh, the good professor say. Uh, that the recess appointments clause was uh, the capstone, not the exception. This is an I think that's just an odd formulation. The vast, vast majority of appointments are by w with the advice and consent of the Senate. So, you know, it's quite clear that in the Federalist Papers that the framers, you know, um, as the professor explained, um, debated at length about quite how appointments were going to work and quite what the role of the legislature was going to be. But the, the, um, the recess appointments clause, there was no debate at all. They thought, oh, yes, we'll have to have something like that. And they wrote that in. And there was no talk about it at all. After this carefully wrought mechanism for appointments on the one hand, this, this quick, un, this quick uh, vacancies clause or uh, recess appointments clause with no debate at all, surely that suggests that they thought that was the exception to the rule. Um, uh, I heard Professor Williams say that uh, the president, I, I think I heard you say that the president can make the appointment even if the Senate votes no. Did you say that? Oh, so, of course, of course. So that, uh, so um, uh, the, uh, I'm going to give you the, um, the uh, primary clause again. The president shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint. Now, Professor Williams is telling you that if the Senate votes no, the president can go ahead and make the appointment anyway. I'm here to tell you nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks that. That is not, that, that's, um, that, that's, that is not the conventional wisdom. And that's, I've actually, I don't think I've ever heard that view espoused before. So that's an unusual claim. I'd like to hear, I guess, more about that. But that is not the conventional uh, wisdom I'm here to tell you. Um, now, Professor Williams called these things sham sessions. Uh, these little micro sessions or pro forma sessions called them uh, sham sessions, uh, um, uh, sessions during which the Senate couldn't possibly do any real business. Um, the Senate actually voted for and passed a bill during one of these sessions only 10 days before these appointments. So we know for a fact that the Senate actually can do business during these sessions and did and did. So there's, I don't think you can quite call these sham sessions. You actually can do business during them, and the Senate has. Now, as to all of these questions that I raised in my opening presentation, the logic of the government's view, is it possible that it includes even just a lunch break? And if you want to say not a lunch break, then where do you get these three days from? And why is it that recess could be short and informal, but session means an entire year? And this anomaly about if you do it at the beginning, then it's going to last for two whole years. As to that, we heard no answer whatsoever, except to refer you to the excellent SG brief. That's, I think, an unusual way to win a debate. But you know, go, have a look at the SG brief and have a look at the uh, Noel Francisco brief and see what you think. But I would urge you in questions and answers, at least, ask Professor Williams, does a lunch break count? And if not, why not? I think that'll uh, help put a fine uh, point on this. Now, the strongest point that you heard from Professor Williams is 
this giant appendix with all of these prior appointments that seemed to be where the vacancy arose not during the recess or where the recess was not was intra-session rather than inter-session. And that is a legit argument. That's a legit argument, and you have to ask yourself, how much does that matter to you? So if you think that I'm right as a matter of first principles, you could nevertheless believe something like, but there's so much water under the bridge. Or the constant, you can, you can either believe something like, um, yes, that's wrong, but we should stick with it anyway, even though it's wrong, because it's, we've, got, we've stuck with it for so long. So you could believe something like that. Or you could believe something like, that long tradition actually changes the meaning of the Constitution, so that even though it was wrong before, somehow it's become right here now via uh, tradition. I don't believe either of those things, but those are at least legitimate things to believe. Nick, Nick your time is up, and I want to stop you before you give away too much more. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> OK, thank you. Vic? Legit arguments versus non-legit. <laughs> that reminds me more of law school. I'm I, I actually a little comforted uh, by, by that. Um, uh, uh, gosh, uh, where do we begin? Lincoln, uh, David Davis, uh, his friend at that point, uh, Abraham Lincoln needed, needed all the friends he could get uh, to, the, to, the, uh, to the US Supreme Court, uh, would not have satisfied the strict test of, um, of the D.C. Circuit in order to get rid of the Obama appointments. Grant's uh, uh, first uh, uh, Solicitor General, indeed the first Solicitor General of the United States, uh, one of these prohibited uh, uh, re recess appointments. William Pryor, Jr., to the, <laughs> to the 11th Circuit. George W. I pushed him hard to do Miguel Estrada to the D.C. Circuit. He didn't have the courage, but he did for William Pryor to the 11th Circuit. Intercession appointment to a pre-existing vacancy there on uh, the 11th uh, uh, Circuit, down where I used to work. Still, uh, still have fond memories of Fairhope, Alabama. William Pryor, of course, that was challenged by Teddy Kennedy and that crowd. And the 11th Circuit said, of course, of course, this is constitutional. Uh, Non-justiciable? Well, it's that too, but, but at least parts. Uh, but, but of course it's constitutional. An intra-session recess point, I think the recess point was something of, of, of 10 days. Uh, others, uh, Irving Crystal to a media board. Gene Kirkpatrick to the United Nations. Nobody gonna stand here and tell me that Gene Kirkpatrick was not constitutional. She, she stared down tyrant, small and large. That was a constitutional appointment and doing God's work at the United Nations. What else can we say? Well, I, I could talk more about justiciability. I, 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 I could remind that it was in Marbury versus Madison that um, a John Marshall uh, uh, first informed that questions in their nature political or which are by the Constitution and the laws submitted to the executive can never be made by this court, the president has certain discretionary powers for which he is, quote, accountable only to his country, in his political character, and to his own conscience. And that's more than justiciability. That's constitutional. That's what it means uh, to have, have a, a president. 
Another, another case just for your, your knowledge, Goldwater v. Carter. Uh, the court rejected challenge of a congressional delegation's um, um, a lawsuit against Pre President Jimmy Carter's decision to terminate a defense treaty with Taiwan. Without what? Going hat in hand uh, to the House and Senate and saying, may I do this? Then Associate Justice William Rehnquist wrote, here, while the Constitution is expressed as to the manner in which the Senate shall participate in the ratification of a treaty, it is silent as to that body's participation in the abrogation of a treaty. Similarly, with Noel Canning and all the other recess appointment uh, uh, challenges that have been ginned up um, um, uh, all across this country. Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 is expressed as to the manner that the Senate participates in the advisory consent vote, in the confirmation of an ordinary permanent appointment. The next clause of the Constitution, and we're talking the Constitution here, it is the constitutional read that we do. The next clause negates that body's participation in the president's decision to sign a temporary uh, a commission uh, to the pro forma sessions. I argued this against Harry Reid when he started uh, this childishness, this silliness, in uh, 2007, um, it is an embarrassment to the Senate as an institution. It is a waste of taxpayers' money um, uh, to, uh, to uh, light up the place and with uh, deference to C-SPAN uh, to, to run their cameras. I have one minute uh, to tell you uh, that these pro forma sessions uh, in their, their latest um, development wasn't, that wasn't even the Senate. The, the Senate isn't objecting to these recess appointments. That was a partisan minority of the Senate colluding with the House majority. The House majority refused adjournment consent. So the Senate was forced into these pro forma sessions. Uh, the House majority colludes with the Senate uh, minority for these sham sessions. Shame on the House majority. Shame on the Senate minority. Kudos uh, to President uh, Obama for making his constitutional appointments. Uh, precedent for uh, President um, Rand Paul, Hillary Clinton, to run our government. Thank you. All right, we've heard from our two debaters. Now let's hear from you. Um, before we begin, uh, please uh, wait to be called on. Um, wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and our audience watching online can hear the question. Uh, please, for purposes of C-SPAN, stand uh, when you um, get the microphone and um, give us your name and any affiliation you have. Try to make your question short. And uh, I've asked our speakers to give short answers as well. Okay. Where do we, let's uh, start with this gentleman right here. And while, before I begin, um, while we're fielding questions, if others of you could give me your hand and I'll send the people to uh, your, so we can save time there too. Okay, go ahead. Yes, sir. I'm Sam Wright, a retired Navy lawyer. Um, you, on the appointments clause, not the recess appointments clause, in, I believe in every cabinet department, the line has been drawn, assistant secretaries and above require Senate confirmation. Deputy assistant secretaries and below do not. 
How did that line come to be drawn, and is that a defensible line, or where is the line between what requires Senate confirmation and what does not? Who's that question for? Uh, well, so the, um, again, uh, shall appoint and bind with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for and which shall be established by law. You know, there, there has not, there's not, um, there's not, I wouldn't say clear doctrine about quite where those lines ought to be drawn, but there's, you know, there's senior officers and less senior officers, but I, I don't think there actually is a clear, there is the line of tradition, but I don't think there's a quite a clear constitutional line about who should, who requires Senate consent and who doesn't as to that. If, if I could just yes. say, uh, certainly, certainly I, I agree with that. Of course, the partisan obstruction that we've seen both from Democrats and Republicans um, uh, lend us to want to uh, reduce the number of, of officials uh, that are subject to, to, to Senate confirmation. In some ways, that, that's unfortunate that, that the Senate uh, can't perform its, its, uh, its uh, constitutional function, but I have to agree at this point, uh, we should reduce uh, uh, the number uh, subject to this torturous uh, uh, process. Gentleman right over here. David Sobelson, Washington, D.C. Even if it's not within the technical bounds of the debate topic, I'd like to hear uh, Professor Rosencrantz respond to Professor Williams' justiciability argument on the merits. Well, I, I actually, I believe that this is justiciable because I believe that uh, Noel Canning has a legitimate dispute. I think that, um, uh, that is, I think there is a real case or controversy involving this party, Noel Canning. And I actually think that separation of powers at its core is about individual liberties. So I don't think this is the kind of thing that is left to the political branches to quite work out on their own. And I think this is the sort of thing that the uh, court ought to be in, the court ought to take a crack at. And I think, uh, I, um, uh, I think the court you know, granted cert in the case, I think it's very likely to reach the merits. So just as a predictive matter, I don't think the court's going to say this is non-justiciable, and I don't think that it should say that. But again, this debate is not about that, right? This is, we're, we're trying to answer the constitutional question quite regardless of whether you think the court ought to be involved. Well, if it were non-justiciable, then it would fall by default to the president, would it not? Well, no. I mean, you, you could so you could believe it was non-justiciable. You could also believe that the president was violating the Constitution by these purported appointments, and then you could think that there were other proper remedies. For example, you could believe that impeachment was proper, or you could believe that this was a proper reason to vote for the other party in the next election, or, you know, or to vote for the other party when you're voting for your senator. But until those two remedies were available, namely the next election or impeachment, then the president would be de facto successful in making the appointment and ignoring the separation of powers. Point. Well, so um, Congress actually has withheld the pay oh, of wow. folks who Other were appointed per some of the, per uh, either intra-session or, per, or uh, when the vacancy didn't arise during uh, recess. And there's um, actually a good bit of debate about um, the government wants to say they've acquiesced in the, the, the Senate's acquiesced in the sense that they've acknowledged that there are such people in the world. Um, Noel Francisco, Noel Cannon wants to say 
um, that's not acquiescing, that's retaliating, right? That's retaliating against an unconstitutional action. You could say that's, you know, making the punishment fit the crime. Maybe this doesn't rise to the level of an impeachable offense. But, the, you know, the, the framers' idea was that for these non-justiciable questions, if it is non-justiciable, um, the way these things would get worked out is through the various weapons that uh, each branch has, the various arrows they have in their quiver, and a big arrow that the... Um, the legislature has is uh, the power of the purse. So that it's exactly what they expected it would happen. This gentleman right here. Oh, hi, I'm Tate from the Mankell Economic Education Foundation in Australia. Uh, I'm just asking the full, full bench, uh, what sort of precedent does this appointment process set if it is deemed constitutional? If the president can A, determine when the Senate is sitting and B, when these positions become or happen to be vacant, doesn't this create a situation where highly political appointments will be made during these sham breaks or recesses in the future? And is this where you want to head? I think that's to you. Uh, well, uh, we, we, we uh, could talk about the efficiencies of the recess appointment uh, process, um, and they are, uh, they are many. Uh, but let's talk about the limitations. Obviously, the limitation of recess appointment is, is, is the term limitation. And while up to two years uh, is, a, um, is, is a pretty long term, it's certainly not the full presidential term or, or certainly uh, eight years presidential term, certainly not the many years term of a, of a regulatory official, um, nor the life tenure of office and salary of a federal judge. So there are many reasons that a president might not want to make um, um, a recess appointment. There are many limitations uh, to, to, to this uh, alternative. Uh, I have to just point out for the record, uh, Barack Obama's been very reserved, uh, uh, too much so for my taste. I, I, I bashed him on the Huffington Post uh, uh, for being too reserved. 32 recess commissions compared to 250 for the great Ronald Reagan, uh, compared uh, to, to a couple of hundred um, of, of, by William Jefferson Clinton, my fellow Arkansan, uh, compared to, uh, uh, again, close to a couple of hundred by George W. Bush. Uh, so I might just say, um, this is a dramatic shift in power from the Senate to the president if this is upheld. I think that's what you're asking. What's the precedent here? It's a dramatic shift of power from the Senate to the president. It's really the exception swallowing the rule. So if this is okay, then um, the president can really always get around the need for advice and consent by waiting for a little recess to do the appointments. So it's the exception swallowing the rule in a way that matters a lot as to appointments, which is hugely important, it's hugely important executive power, but it matters beyond that too, because everything happens in the shadow of these separation of powers provisions. When they are negotiating about other things, when they're negotiating about Obamacare or whatever it is, um, in the shadow is we might, not, uh, we might not confirm your next appointee if you don't go along with us on X, right? So this shifts the needle toward the president in all those negotiations about everything, not just about appointments. So it's actually quite a big deal. Right here. Devin Watkins from George Mason School of Law. I had a question for Professor Williams. I was wondering if you could respond to what I consider kind of the most devastating historical evidence, and that's that uh, George Washington, when he was trying to appoint people, he tried to contact them first and confirm that they wanted the appointment. But if he couldn't, and the session was about to end, he asked the Senate to appoint them anyway, so that if they resigned during the recess, that he could then appoint someone else. 
why do you consider that not to apply in this case or be relevant in this case as to whether or not he can uh, appoint someone even if it arise before the end of the session? Of course, we look uh, to the entirety of the historical record and, and again, uh, look to the Solicitor General's briefs, blog.com for the hundreds, indeed thousands uh, of, of, of recess appointments for George Washington in that particular case. Uh, gosh, uh, and, and, uh, uh, great to see you from George Mason. And um, bad lawyering. Uh, he had some, <laughs> some bad advice um, that, uh, that this, uh, this silliness regarding the vacancy had to pop open during the intercession recess were, were the only type of, of positions that he could recess point. So, so he was doing just a little bit, uh, the great general, of maneuvering. That, that's a rather extraordinary answer, isn't it? I mean, this is an argument that really is built on history and tradition. So the, um, the appendix in the back with a big list of appointments is the heart of the argument. So if you have to throw George Washington under the bus to make your historical <laughs> argument work. No, no, just as lawyer. You have a bit of a problem, I think. So that's a quite an extraordinary claim. Uh, uh, David Bernstein. Yeah, hi, uh, David Bernstein, George Mason Law School and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Um, in terms of presidential unilateralism in the Obama administration, this is kind of small potatoes, but there's a related issue, without getting into all the rest of them, of these czars that presidents have been increasingly appointing uh, to high-level positions that should be executive offices subject to confirmation, but instead they just call them the director of regulatory policy or director of this and that. Um, it's Bush did a lot of it. Obama's doing even more. The extraordinary thing that I saw, and this goes to some of the discussion we've been having, is that the Senate and House actually passed legislation defunding in 2011 a couple of these positions. Uh, so bipartisan, at least enough bipartisan to get votes through. And the Obama administration then issued, just issued a signing statement, signing the legislation as part of a broader package, and saying, yeah, but they can't defund these positions because it's part of the executive authority to decide to appoint who we want to. So my question is, uh, any comment on the growth of czars to avoid the appointment pro the, the appointments clause completely, and whether there's a plausible constitutional challenge that could arise in the judiciary to challenge uh, some of these appointments? It's extraordinary, isn't it, that we've adopted the word czar for these people? I think, <laughs> I, uh, I think it actually turns on quite what their powers really are. So they sound very important, but I think you have to actually have to get into the weeds on quite what authority these folks actually have to the extent that they're just giving advice to the president I and mean, to the extent that they're like you know, somebody in the White House that's just advising the president and not really sitting atop a structure, I generally think that they're okay, but I would want to get into the weeds on quite exactly what the authority of those folks are before I thought that they necessarily needed Senate consent. Well, I certainly agree with that, and, and shame on the Senate uh, for not timely um, uh, offering its advisory consent, as the framers intended. Praise to the Senate. Uh, for finally getting rid of confirmation filibusters, except for uh, Supreme Court nominees. That's coming. Um, 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 uh, Mitch McConnell said, well, it'll come during the Republicans. Well, good, let it come. Let's get rid of this filibuster. The framers intended uh, simple majority votes. The Articles of Confederation failed because it was, uh, uh, it required uh, supermajority votes, a unanimous, unanimous, if you can say it, a unanimous vote uh, among the states. Um, uh, so praise to the Senate for ending um, uh, confirmation filibusters. Okay, um, right here, please. Uh, Wayne Mary, the American Foreign Policy Council. 
we do a lot of things in this country based on tradition and practice that may not be entirely constitutional. I mean, vice presidents from John Tyler through Lyndon Johnson succeeded to the presidency with no constitutional authority to do so until the 25th Amendment in 1967. Uh, but nobody is arguing that retrospectively those presidencies were illegitimate or anything those presidents did was illegitimate. If you look at the thousands of people who have been appointed from Washington through Obama in intercessional uh, terms, uh, aren't you actually opening an incredible uh, question of retrospective uh, negation of of an enormous amount of what U.S. Uh, US officials have done. And in particularly in foreign affairs, would not this raise questions about what ambassadors, uh, for example, Gene Kirkpatrick, for whom I once worked, uh, conducted on behalf of the United States uh, if you draw into question the legitimacy uh, of their official status? Uh, so that's a great question. That's uh, what I was starting to get at when Roger uh, cut me off from my own uh, good. Um, so uh, tradition and practice does matter. And that is certainly the most powerful argument on the other side here. I think it shouldn't win the day and probably won't win the day at the court for a few different reasons. So one is um, uh, a tradition and practice that starts in 1789, I think is all but conclusive, really. But this didn't start in 1789. It really started in more like 1823 was the first time anyone suggested that happen means something other than occur. So the entire founding generation actually believed that happen means occur. And uh, you know, it's, um, it, it may sound, um, uh, I guess to me, that, to me that difference matters. So 1789 versus 1823 actually matters. If it's 1789, that tells me that I might be wrong about what the text meant, the original meaning of the text. But if it's 1823, then I'm comfortable saying that attorney general, circa 1823, was wrong, got it wrong, and the founding generation was right about this. So to me, that matters. Second thing is, there's no doctrine on this. So we, um, history has a lot of uh, power when there are early Supreme Court cases. We don't have any here. So it's gonna, the history is going to have a little less power because we don't have uh, doctrine. And third, um, this is not quite settled. Even though there's this giant appendix, um, the Senate has pretty consistently resisted this and expressed its concern that this was not actually consistent with um, the original meaning. So uh, this is, it's not quite that the political branches reached an accommodation about this. Or the Senate quite acquiesced in this. This has been controversial, and the controversy has flared up in a number of different ways, kind of throughout from 1823 on. So, so it's just not quite settled in the way that um, might uh, carry the day, I think. Yes, it's a, it's a very important question. It's a, it's a very important uh, uh, case. And I actually tried to make this argument a bit to the court in my amicus brief on justiciability. Um, if the court's not persuaded by its own precedent in history to avoid the partisan uh, appointment a fight, my, my, my brief raises the less domesticated abstention perspective of the late great uh, Alexander Bickel in his least dangerous branch, the Supreme Court at the Bar of Politics. Uh, Professor Bickel advised courts to consider um, the strangeness, the intractability, and all the, the momentousness uh, of an issue. Just that strange case that we've not seen before. Um, he, he referenced the inner vulnerability, the self-doubt of an institution which is electorally irresponsible and has no earth 
to draw strength from. This is exactly that case. This is exactly the Bickle abstention case. Our unelected judiciary has no earth to draw strength from. It should stay out of the partisan mud fights of appointments. Okay. Right up here. Thanks. I'm Gabe Latner, Cato Institute. Um, if every senator and the vast majority of the president's cabinet were to die in the middle of a Senate session of a simultaneous heart attack, would this president be able to use the recess clause to make appointments to refill his cabinet, or would he have to wait for each of the states to send new senators? Only at Cato will you get a question like that. <laughs> I think I'm going to leave that one for you, Roger. <laughs> As I well, am. He works for me, so I did not plan it with Gabe. But did you have a... Oh, no, it's yours. Oh, oh no. <laughs> Gabe, I'll see you afterward. Okay. Uh, we had a question right here. Gabriel Balayan, I'm a Fulbright visiting scholar at the Law Library of Congress. And I would like to ask a question to both of our speakers. Do you think the... Removal power should have the same procedures as the appointment and nomination. Because if we go back about 200 years ago, for the removal, uh, President Andrew Johnson uh, escaped for one vote uh, on impeachment. Thank you. So uh, the Constitution has provisions about appointment uh, that we've been talking about, but it actually doesn't say anything about removal. And so it was possible to believe that, uh, th that these things were supposed to be symmetrical. You could have believed that if you needed the Senate consent to appoint, then you also needed Senate consent to remove. That was a, was a plausible thing to believe when there was, and there was no text on this, and some, some smart people did actually believe that, but uh, now the conventional wisdom is the president gets to remove those folks on his own motion, even though they were, uh, that is unilaterally, even uh, those who were uh, cons who the Senate had to consent to, and I think that's right. But it's certainly, uh, as a matter of first principles, there were smart things to be said on the other side. Of course, the D.C. Circuit's uh, uh, ruling uh, would would limit the president's discretion uh, in terms of removal, in the sense that if you take them at their word, there has to be that magic little time, uh, less than an hour between sessions, uh, and so you would need to, to fire your folk um, during that hour and recess commission your folk uh, in in that same hour uh, of of, a, of an intercession. Um, uh, recess. I want President Rand Paul or Hillary Clinton uh, to be able to fire folks when they need to. And I know Hillary will do it. Uh, right up here is the next question. Uh, Mark Calabria, uh, Cato Institute. Uh, I'm an economist, not a lawyer, so I will beg your indulgence to my ignorance of the law. Uh, and let me ask two quick questions. The first of which, uh, Professor Williams has a couple of occasions referenced a 51 vote. Uh, my read of the Constitution is it seems to be quite silent uh, in the Senate, and my read be able to set its own rules. And of course, Richard Cordray, who was one of the nominees at the time, did get a Senate vote, did not read 60. Uh, I will also note the day before the resource appointments, his paperwork was returned to the White House. So my second question is, as a former Senate staffer who had to do a lot of paperwork, I consider the exchange of paperwork and messages between the executive branch and the Senate to actually be business. So my question would be, are votes the only really things we consider business in the Senate? Or what exactly is Senate business if it is not the exchange and receipt of messages with the executive branch, which again, happened within 24 hours of the appointments? I think that's 
To you. Oh, well, that's a very interesting question. I, I didn't know that. I would have to, have to think about that a, a bit. You know, the problem with these pro, pro forma sessions, since Harry Reid started them in 2007, 2008, uh, we come to see the Senate's business as monkey business. We come to see it as, as child's play. Um, but it's a good question, and I'll have to do some thought to that. It didn't start with Harry Reid, did it? Uh, well, well um, it didn't start with Harry Reid, but, but... I mean, uh, the monkey business. <laughs> Thousands of years ago, no. depending okay. on your view of a Question right here. Yes, hi, my name is Wilma Liebman. I am the immediate Could past chairman. speak up into okay. the microphone, please? Yes, uh, my name is Wilma Liebman. I am the immediate past chairman of the National Labor Relations Board. Um, I, leaving the agency in August 2011, created one of these vacancies that was filled by a recess. Could you um, speak up, please? It's yeah. Um, the con uh, Professor Williams talked about the fact that the difficulties in making these appointments were occasioned by the fact that the House of Representatives was refusing to consent to a recess of the Congress. Uh, the Constitution says that you need the consent of both houses to have a recess. Um, the Constitution also says that the president can declare the Congress in recess if the two houses cannot agree. So my question mostly to Professor Rosencrantz is, do you think Pre uh, President Obama would have been better served following that route? I think during this period, the two routes were being debated and studied. Would he have been better because the, the uh, Constitution expressly gives him that authority? That's an interesting question. I'd have to think about that, actually. Yeah, that's a good question. You have anything to say on that? Um, uh, yes, uh, there, there, there was actually uh, quite a lot of uh, encouragement for him to do just that. Um, I'm huffing to post another such uh, uh, wonderful sites in our, uh, in our new technology age. Uh, I, I wish that he had. I, 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 think, I think that he, sh he should have tried that. Uh, I, certainly, I certainly do. That was, you know, uh, talking about lawyers and talking about lawyers making uh, uh, outrageous arguments, um, uh, unusual arguments, um, it was Robert Kennedy, wasn't it, that said the most important characteristic of a lawyer is courage. And that means thinking outside the box and making um, uh, unusual arguments. Uh, sorry, I guess I'll just get one other thing out on the table as to that. So... Uh, it's um, important to note the uh, 20th Amendment says uh, the Congress shall assemble at least once in every year, and such meetings shall begin at noon on the third day of January, unless they shall by law appoint a different day. And uh, President Obama believes that one of these pro forma sessions sufficed for that clause. So counts, counts for purposes of the 20th Amendment. So. Uh, the administration wants to take the position that these sessions are legit for some constitutional purposes, but not for others, and that's a bit awkward. Now, if he disbanded Congress, then I suppose they, uh, depending on the date, he might have risked running afoul of that provision. So I guess that's a, something he would have had to bear in mind, at least. Uh, Stanley Cook, US EPA. I believe, but I'm not certain that George Mason professor's question on SARS, he also had a part of his inquiries about funding and Congress's power to fund the position and something happened along that line. Is that correct? Was there a funding question, Congress's power to fund or not fund? I think I may go to the point that I was making about the 
Congress's remedy is to not. Fail. Yeah, yeah. So uh, if Congress believes that the president is violating the Constitution, one of his one of their uh, remedies is to not fund some of his favorite things, and they may be it may be the salary of appointees, or it may be the budget of certain agencies, or whatever. And that's actually the way that's supposed to work. I mean, that was the idea. So. And uh, as to, no, no, right up there. Jonathan Curla, uh, Georgetown Law alum. If the Supreme Court says that the Senate um, doesn't really have the, its own power to decide when it's doing its own recesses, what reasons would they give for this? And has the Supreme Court ever second-guessed the Senate's rulemaking and its own kind of decision-making power before? That's to you. Uh, again, I do repeat the question. Uh, just, re just a quick recitement. Sorry. Yeah. Has the Senate ever? Uh, has the Supreme Court ever said to the Senate, "No, this is not a recess," or "You don't have," or "We're going to contravene your power to decide what your own rules are"? I, I don't. Uh, but perhaps they've they've come close in terms of the removal cases, but but I don't I don't believe they've addressed this. I think that's one of the reasons that this case is so important. But but. Well, but I, I think what the question is driving at is, has the court ever second-guessed the Senate as to its own rules? Oh, I think the oh, answer is no. Well, no. In, in the Walter Nixon uh, impeachment removal case, they were affirmative uh, in not doing that. Um, uh, it's a very interesting question. Uh, back to the budgetary question. That's right. That's right. The, the, you know, uh, I come from Arkansas. Wilbur Mills. Remember Wilbur Mills? There's lots of ways and means that Congress uh, can have interactions uh, with uh, the president. If C. Borden Gray... Uh, uh, believes that intra-session recess appointments are uh, unconstitutional. Um, gosh, uh, January 17, 2006. I think maybe you should get back the title and, and perhaps even Treasury should claw back the salary. Well, he could afford it, but in any event, um, <laughs> Roger. Uh, yes. So, so can I take? Uh, can I ask sure. a question? So yes. I'm, I'm, I've been waiting for you all to ask the question that I want the answer to. So, uh, Professor Williams, how short is too short? Do you believe that lunch that a lunch break is a recess? I do not believe that the uh, adjournment clause three-day provision applies to or restricts uh, the president. Um, in a time of national emergency, I do not want to handcuff the president. Um, in terms of how, how short is too short. But I would, I would, I would ask you a question. Um, in an intercession uh, recess appointment of a, uh, of a vacancy that pops open during that intersection that lasts uh, 45 minutes, mm -hmm. does the president have the power to recess appoint? In an intercession? An intercession lasts 45 minutes. Uh, the vacancy uh, pops open during that 45 minutes. Yes. Oh, and it happens. Yeah, but, but sorry, so, um, but, so your answer was lunch would count, yes? Uh, your answer but was you, less than lunch. I, I, I don't do a four, I'm from Arkansas. I, I don't do a 45-minute lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that doesn't get past the rolls. All right. Up here, please. Thank you, uh, Matthew Christ, a lawyer in Virginia. My question is, uh, with a little bit of background in my question, I wanted to say first, uh, even if you cite a 1,000 uh, unconstitutional actions by past presidents, that doesn't support your position today that this uh, president's unconstitutional action is constitutional. Uh, bad evidence will not help you. Uh, but the, the real uh, thrust of what I want to ask is, uh, if all of this history still permits President Obama to aggrandize his power uh, that isn't uh, 
limited to President Obama, as you said, uh, a President Rand Paul or President Hillary Clinton would also have that power. But the problem is, is that we have uh, about, I would estimate, 100 years of essentially the Constitution being in abeyance, especially since 1937, but I think from 1913. And so we have a continual aggrandizement of the presidential power. And, uh, and isn't this just uh, one more step to where the president is just taking power, more and more power away from the Congress. Uh, that was to Professor Williams. Well, uh, again, I would just go back to, to uh, it's a serious question. I take it as a serious question. Um, in terms of uh, Barack Obama, Barack Hussein Obama, I, I would go back to the fact that he has been very, very restrained. Only 32 uh, recess appointments, over 250 for Ronald Reagan. Um, but, but, but I accept the question. It's an important question. We need to think about that question. And, and we need to go past Article I, Article II. We really need to go past Article III. We need to go to Article V. That's, that's how we make uh, constitutional change, not through the courts. If we're serious about it being a democratic republic, we go to Article V. We amend the Constitution, if you're concerned about it. Yeah. Well, time for just one more question, David. David Ray, the Federal Society. This question really is professor, for Professor Rosencrantz. Uh, but before I do that very quickly, I think maybe uh, an applicable case that, that addressed whether or not the Supreme Court could ever involve itself in, in uh, Congress setting its own rules might be the Adam Clayton Powell case. Uh, at least just, just to throw that out there. But my question, which, I, which a previous gentleman had asked earlier that, that I didn't hear an answer to, imagine that, that the Supreme Court does exactly what, what you predict, rules nine nothing in favor of Noel Canning. Does that then potentially open up uh, just an amazing cornucopia of, of, of challenges to just myriad decisions made for decades and decades uh, if the effect of those rulings is still being felt by, by parties today? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's, it will be tricky for the court. So the first question is, on what grounds is the court going to decide? I predict... I predict several justices decide on the narrowest ground, which is simply these uh, pro forma sessions count. Right? These pro forma sessions count. And so as to, and um, these appointments, President Obama's appointments that are issued in this case, they are unprecedented, right? These are the, this is the only time that the president has purported to appoint folks when the Senate itself believed that it was in session. So deciding on that ground casts into doubt only these appointments, none of the other thousands. And I predict um, at least several justices will decide on that narrow ground. Um, even as to that narrow ground, there are some tricky remedial questions. So is it everything that the NLRB has done since that date? Um, I think there's some tricky questions. Um, I think the NLRB can probably go back and retroactively ratify most of what they've done, but maybe not all. There might be some things that they have to do again. I think that's a tricky set of questions. It'll be uh, it'll be tricky for the NLRB to handle that. Yeah. And then Justice Thomas will write a concurrence about the word happens. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Anything more? Oh, other than uh, just thank you so much, uh, uh, and I can tell uh, for, for being here and for loving our Constitution the, the way I do, and, and for all our folks uh, listening out there, uh, uh, we are we the people, and I, I agree there. All right, it's uh, time now to break for lunch. Uh, there are restrooms downstairs on this floor and on the second floor. We're going up to the George M. Yeager Conference Center up the spiral staircase for lunch. 
Uh, let me again thank the Federalist Society and its practice groups for co-sponsoring this event today with the Cato Institute. We uh, have a good relationship with our friends over at the Federalist Society, in most cases. Um, in any event, uh, let's uh, conclude with a warm round of applause for our speakers. <laughs>